When I sat down in my chair last night about 8 o'clock, do a little reading and watch a little television, I felt great. About 45 minutes later, I was sick. My eyes were watering, my sneezing, I was coughing, I ached all over. Remarkably, it was about a half an hour after my wife had fed me, so I wonder if there was something in the food, but it came on very quickly. And uh, So we're going to make some adjustments today. First of all, I'm using our pulpit mic so that um, I can turn my head away when I cough or sneeze, and so I won't blast your ears out. And so if you listen to this on a podcast, you'll maybe understand the fades that will come as I turn my head a little bit. Um, also, I'm going to try to keep from giving it to you. So a little later in our service when we do communion, Pastor Steve's going to come and officiate, and I'm going to stay away from the element, so I can't pass it to you that way. We'd love for you to take a lot of stuff from Hope Chapel, but not my cold, all right? And, um, and I'll also may, I'll be out in the connection corner, but I'll stay behind the table so it won't get to you, and I'd love to have a chance to meet you if you're our guest today. Um, the third thing is that I, I'm... I'm just going to kind of give you the ingredients, and I'm going to let you cook the meal, okay? I mean, I'm not going to have the normal energy and et cetera, that kind of stuff. I certainly don't have the voice, especially this being the second time through. But um, we really do have a great uh, passage and some great concepts for us to explore before the Lord today. And I'd love for you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. If you use one of our pew Bibles, it will be right there underneath the chair in front of you. You'll find this text on page 1036. And I did want to, while you turn on those pages, let me just put a plug in for First Concern's banquet. Many of you know that we've supported First Concern for a long time. It's a crisis pregnancy center in Clinton. And uh, I've had the privilege the last year and a half or so of being on their board. And uh, we have a tremendous speaker coming this year. Her name is Catherine Adair. Some of you read about her in my column a little over a week ago. And we would love for you to be a part of that banquet. It's on a Wednesday night. The doors kind of open at 645, and we'll get underway at 7. There's no cost to attend. And um, there, you'll get a chance to hear from Catherine. You'll get a chance to meet our new center director. You will, have, you will be given the opportunity to make a gift or uh, become a supporter if you'd like to, but it's not mandatory. I think it would be really great for you just to hear what Catherine and, and has to say, as well as a lot of um, special things uh, that the center's been doing, so love for you to join me there. I'm, I'm responsible for hosting three tables. So that means 24 people. So e- either I'm going to have to eat a lot or some of you are going to have to go with me, all right? So it would be great to have you come along with us. And it's a week from Wednesday, and uh, it start, again, it starts at 645. You can see me out in the lobby. I'd be glad to fill you in about it. So um, we've been in this series now entitled Key Choices to a Great Life. Now, clearly, we're not defining great life the way, the way that maybe our society does. We're, we're not looking at the great life as being like the life of the rich and famous. You know, to live a great life is not to be like Jay Leno and owned 132 different automobiles. That's not, that's not what we're talking about at all. We're defining a great life, as the Apostle John does, at the beginning of his book to us, his letter to us, as living in the kind of relationship with God that allows us to actively participate in, actively experience, actively share in all that God intended to give us in Jesus Christ. So it's, it's, it's an experience for us where God is looking to pour everything into us that he intended to give us when he sent his son to climb out of heaven and climb into the skin of an infant and to walk among us. And we've been looking at some key choices that allow us to unleash that great life within us. Hopefully these choices will help us to stay away from choices that we regret 
and help us to embrace those that actually lead us to in a place where we can experience all of that. And I don't want to recap everything that we've talked about so far, but the first choice was simply to allow God's truth to set us free. To, to be honest about who we are, where we've come from, what we've done, what's happened to us. Come to God in a spirit of honesty about our past and let God's truth set us free. The amazing thing about Christianity, about the life that God offers us in Jesus Christ, is that our lives are dictated by our futures and not by our past. God's grace sets us free from our past. It doesn't mean that none of the consequences come with it, but God in His grace leads our lives to really be dictated by the future, by the way that he seeks to guide us as we go forward. And we need to allow God's truth to make the choice to let God's truth set us free. The second choice that we looked at last week, and you can go back and listen to these on our podcasts um, that that you'll find on our website, that the, the second choice was simply to complete our love for God. To do the things that build our love for God, and to cease doing those things that minimize or limit or distract us from our love for God. And we processed some wonderful truths last week out of those. Today I want to look at the third choice. And this text for us, is the, the focal verse, if you will, the theme verse for this week, is found in verse 12 of 1 John chapter 4. <laughs> Let me read it for us first. And we'll back up and read it all in context in verses 7 through 21. But here's our theme verse. No one's ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us, and his love is perfected in us. So this idea of God's love being perfected in us, that word perfected has the idea of being complete, being fully mature, producing all of the fruit that God intended. So what John is saying to us is that for you and I to feel the full impact of God's love on our lives, this is what we need to do. We need to love one another. So one of the key choices to releasing God's Great life within us is the choice to love one another. Because somehow or another, in the choice to love others, God remains in us. In other words, we, we participate with Him, we're active with Him, and with that, everything that His life, His love is designed to produce within us happens. And that's a great life. Now, let's unpack that a little bit as we look at verses 7 through 21. Now, I really wish at times John was a lot more like Paul. You know, because Paul, you know, you can go over to 1 Corinthians 13, you know, love is patient, love is kind, love is, you know, and he just lines it all up in a nice row. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's very linear. It's like, it's like pulling out the instructions to put together your new Ikea furniture, right? I mean, it's step one, step two, step three, and you just do it. John is not like that. He's, his process is more like trying to teach you how to appreciate art. You know, it just kind of is, just moves all around the place, you know. It's a, you know, and, and, and so he talks about loving brothers, our brothers in chapter 2. Then he talks about it in chapter 3. Then he talks about it in chapter 4 again. 
And sometimes he repeats himself, and then he adds some new stuff, and then he goes back, and then and he's just all over the place. It's kind of like, and he just, it's like just looking at it from all different angles. And so sometimes it's hard to impose a structure on it for us to think about, but I, I do want to draw out some thoughts from us from our passage today. So follow along with me, beginning with verse 7, and we'll read down through verse 21, then I'll give you a few thoughts, and then... Um, will continue this wonderful journey of making these choices that literally release the full presence, the full power, the full love of God in our lives. John says, dear friends, don't miss the sense of intimacy there. He cares about us. Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that you and I might live. I might adapt it to say so that you and I can have the great life through him. Love consists in this. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, that's not a word that you use all the time. It's not a word I use all the time. Second time we've encountered it in our study of 1 John here. And, and again, it's the idea that, that in Jesus Christ, God has done everything that's necessary to satisfy his problem with our sin. And so it no longer needs to be a barrier between us and him. Dear friends, aren't you glad I'm not wearing my mic? Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we might want to think about loving one another. Or at some point in your journey, you might want to get around to love. We also must love one another. No one's ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us, and his love has every ounce of impact on us that he intended. This is how we know that we remain in him and he in us. He has given to us from his spirit. And we have seen and we testify that the father has sent the son as the savior of the world. We're going to celebrate that in just a few minutes in the Lord's Supper. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God remains in him and he in God. So whoever embraces that Jesus is our savior and our Lord and really believes that, God remains in him and he in God. And we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And the one who remains in love remains in God. And God remains in him. In this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment for we are his in this world. There's no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears has not reached perfection in love. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. In this, love is perfected with us so that we, uh, uh, oh, sorry. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. It's just impossible to say, this person that I can see over here, touch, feel, talk to, 
I hate that person, but the God I can't see, I love. He says, you're just, you're fooling yourself. You're just a, you're just a liar. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For the person who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And we have this command from him. The one who loves God must also love his brother. Now, like I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the ingredients and let you cook the vittles, if you will. I mean, I don't, I don't have the same normal energy and passion. I can't, you know, run around. All that, but I want to try to give you the, the, the pieces and allow you to build your understanding of what it really means to love others in a way that releases the fullness of God's blessing that comes to us in his love. And the first thing I want you to notice about this kind of brotherly love, this choice to love one another, is that its source is in God. I I don't think you can state it any more clearly than in verse 7 of chapter 4, where it says, because love is from God. The kind of love that we're talking about is not the kind of love the sense of compassion or benevolence that man can originate in himself, but it is the kind of love that God pours into us because the kind of brotherly love that he's talking about is love that comes from God. Now, the New Testament was written in the Greek language. A few places, a few other languages, Aramaic and that kind of stuff, but by and large, it was written in Greek. And there are three words in the Greek language for love. One of the words is the word eros. We get the word erotic from it. It, it, it has the idea of uh, to have a passion for something because that, that object that you love or you have a passion for can satisfy you. Believe it or not, that word is never found in the New Testament. Not once. Another word is the word phileo, which, which means brotherly love. We have the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia, Brotherly love, and, and this is a give-and-take kind of love. You know, it's, I love you, and, and in doing that, or I love, it, it makes me feel better, it makes me happy, or feel more full, or whatever, and it's, and it's this back-and-forth kind of love. And then there's this third word. It's the word agape. And, and we make a big deal about this word as we're teaching about love from the New Testament, and that's because it, it was a Greek word, but they hardly ever used it. Occasionally, you'd find some writer who was trying to be, you know, show how smart he was, and he'd reach out and he'd use this word to talk about somebody being really benevolent, you know. So it was a word in their language they never used it. I mean, like we have the word pugnacious. When was the last time you used the word pugnacious, you know? I mean, it was a word, and, and people only used that to show how smart they are, right, you know? And, and it was the same way with this word agape, and, and, and it, they really kind of referred to it as somebody who was really benevolent, okay? Now, Along comes the church, and inspired by the Spirit of God, they, they take a hold of this word agape, and they, and they use it in a whole new way. They, they, they bring it to life. The word agape is a dominant word in the New Testament for love. And what they're trying to say to us is that this, this kind of love never existed before until God poured it out to us. Because this love is from God. And it's, it's a kind of love that is, that is based in the lover, not in the thing loved. 
It's, it's, it's the kind of love that, that it, it originates, it flows out of who we are, who out of God is, rather than the object that is loved. And often the, love, the object that is loved is really in many ways unlovable. And yet that love that, we, that flows out of us, that's self-originating, that's giving itself away, has this just this unconquerableness to it. it it's insatiable. It, just, it, it can't be stopped, and it's continually active, and et cetera. And that's the way God loves us, and he pours that love into us, and he says, that's the way I want you to love others. It has its source from God. I mean, the illustration I love to use because it's the most powerful to me is maybe your children were like ours. There were times when they were very young, they fell in love with certain objects, right? Sometimes it's a blanket. Sometimes it's a bear, you know, some kind of stuffed animals. Well, one of our kids fell in love with this little stuffed animal, and we called him Fluffy. You know, and Fluffy lasted, well, I think we still have Fluffy, but, you know, um, Fluffy lasted for about four or five years. But, he, but he, he, he had several new suits of clothes along the way. He had to get doctored up along the way. And I got to tell you, Fluffy was disgusting. You know how kids like, they wipe their nose on them, they drool on them, they sneer, they drag them through the mud. No matter what, Fluffy was disgusting. We could wash him, he still smelled bad. It, it didn't matter to our son, right? It's, he, he couldn't sleep without Fluffy. You know, tucked up under his arm or whatever. It didn't matter because it wasn't that Fluffy was attractive, because I can tell you, Fluffy was gross. But it's how our son felt about this object and that's the sense of this agape. It didn't matter how disgusting Fluffy was. He still loved and cherished and prized it and had to cling to it. That's very much the kind of love that God's talking about here. And that kind of love only comes from God. So this kind of love that he's talking about that releases the fullness of his love in us is a love that comes from God. But it's also a responsive love. Look at verse 19 of chapter 4. We loved because we thought, thought up this great idea and we decided we'd just start loving people. It says, no, we love because he first loved us. The kind of love that John says is the means for you and I to have God's love for us perfected within us, that kind of love that releases that potential of God within us is a love that comes because we are responding to God's love in our lives and we're giving it away to other people. It's a responsive love. It's not a love that we dream up on our own. It's not, it's not something we create. It's not something you know makes us feel good about ourselves. But, but because we are overwhelmed by the graciousness of God in loving us, we turn around and love other people. In powerful ways. It's a responsive love. We're not loving other people to make them love us. We're loving other people because God has loved us and we've experienced it. And we respond to that love by giving it away. And there's a sense in which this kind of love is rooted in our amazement of God's love for us. And we respond to it by giving it away. But here's, here's a third thing I want you to see. So it's it's it's... It has its source in God, and it's actually reflexive. In other words, we respond to God. And it's our response to God's love for us that causes us to love others. But the third thing is that this love is synergistic. Now, it has a synergistic nature to it. Now, I'm going to struggle to explain this, so try to pay attention, right? 
because I haven't figured this all out myself. But there's an interesting dynamic that goes on. Let me, let me just read verses 7 and 8 for you again. It says, Dear friends, let us love one another. So that's the choice. The choice to love one another. Because love's from God. That's his source. And everyone who loves has been born of God. And everyone who loves knows God. The one who does not know God, the one who does not love, does not know God because God is love. So God in his nature is loving. So when he's just or righteous or holy or or creator or whatever he is, he's always loving because God is love. And if you wanted to state verse 8 positively, you would say the one who knows God loves. But if you look at verse 7, it says the one who loves is the one who knows God. And those two things are, are kind of like, it, they're, they're kind of synergistic with one another. In order to, to love, we have to know God, but we have to love in order to know God. And so it's kind of like, which one comes first, or the chicken or the egg kind of idea, right? And you try to figure out this dynamic. I think this is tremendously important for you and I to grasp in our lives. And... And here's, here's, here's how I want to try to, let me represent it to you, give you an image or an illustration, right? You know, I want you to think about our lives like this water bottle, right? And, and God pours his knowledge into us, right? We don't love, we love because God first loved us. So we, we come to know God and God pours his life into us, right? And so, you, you know, the air's going in. As some point in time, if I kept blowing it on this, there wouldn't be any more room for any more air because this is a hard shell on the outside, right? So I'd get to a point in this vessel where I couldn't contain any more knowledge of God. Now, a couple of weekends ago, I was over at Clinton working in the booth of First Concern, and we were giving away balloons to people. You know, and you pick up a balloon, right, and it's just this flimsy kind of thing. It's small, and thank the Lord we had helium tanks instead of having to blow them up with, with our mouths, and so you just stick it on one, and it's amazing how much that stretches out and how much air it can take in, how much helium it can take in, right? It's, it's incredible, right? They, they go from these teeny little things, you get these big balloons, and et cetera, and, and, and the way that I conceive of this is that God pours himself into us. We get to, we know God, And that causes us to love, but it is in our loving of other people that we actually create the room for God to continue to expand us so he can put more and more of himself into us. Does that make sense at all? And when you and I refuse to love other people, it's like God trying to blow himself into a hard vessel, and after a while, there's just no more room anymore. And and then we stop growing. And it gets all choked out. And I tell you, I think one of the real insights for me as I was studying this is that sometimes the biggest barrier to you and I knowing, experiencing more about God is the fact that we refuse to love other people the way God wants us to. And we start to harden up the balloon and we limit how much of God God can pour into ourselves. And so there's this synergistic relationship, nature between the knowledge of God and the love of God. It's it's our belief, but it's our practice. It's our faith. It's our works. The 
the scholars would talk about it's our Christian theology and it also leads to our Christian ethics. The two things cannot be separated as God speaks into us, gives us more of himself, shows us more of who he is, reveals stuff to us from his word. It automatically has to change the way that we live and, in the, and we become like these balloons that continue to expand because we love others as God has loved us. Does that make any sense? Now, some of this stuff we've been talking about is kind of, let me use the word, it's, it's, it's soft science, right? You know, we're talking about love and it's the sources from God and it's a response to his love and it's got this relationship between what we know about God and how much we love in his name and et cetera. Let me, let me give you some pretty concrete things about this kind of love. And, and I want to turn back to John, first John chapter 3. I told you John was one of these guys that kind of kept talking about the same thing over and over again, you know. Verse 16 of chapter 3, just the bottom of the previous page, page 1035. This is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need but shuts off his compassion from him, how can God's love reside in him? And let me give you some concrete characteristics about this brotherly love that unleashes the ability for God's love for us to be perfected within us, to have its full impact. And the first word I give you is, is it's, it's, it's costly. Or it's sacrificial. You know, we should also, it says in verse 16, lay down our lives for our brothers. The vast majority of us are never going to have the opportunity, thank the Lord, to take a bullet for our neighbor. You know, I was just reading in the paper yesterday, I think, you know, the, one of the young men who was on the train that um, overtook the terrorists in France, right? He was a U.S. Um, military man was back in California, was out with some friends outside of some kind of a nightclub. This woman was getting harassed, and he stood up for her, and he got stabbed a number of times and is in the hospital. Going to make it, et cetera. Most of us never have that opportunity. We just, you know, and I'm not looking for it. You know, I, I'm, not, you know I'm not looking to have to stand in and sacrifice my biological life for somebody else's. Most of us aren't going to get that opportunity Maybe some way it's that privilege or that challenge. But that doesn't mean our love for others isn't supposed to be costly. And when he uses this imagery of laying down our love for others, our love for other people is to be costly. It has a sacrificial nature to it. Whether that is financial, whether that's emotional, whether it has to do with our energy and our time and our priorities and what has to do with our convenience levels or whatever it is, whether it's convenient or inconvenient, but our love for other people in some way or another is supposed to alter the way we do our lives. And so, you know, when John's talking about loving other people and laying down our lives for them, he's not, I don't think he's talking about just throwing a $5 bill in the Salvation Army kettle in front of Walmart at Christmas time, and that takes care of our obligation. He says, no, 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 no. If you're going to love your brethren, if you're going to love others the way God designed you to, it's going to change your lifestyle. It's going to change it economically or otherwise. You know, um, 
I don't, I don't know if anyone in here, I don't, I don't want to embarrass them, but, you know, I, I'm amazed at Steve and Tina Blummer, right? I mean, they have four children. One of them is biological. Now they have three children that belong to a different set of parents. I think it's a lot different to live with one child than it is four, isn't it? I lived with two, and that was almost too, too many. You know, and, and they got four. They got, you know, and, and that's a lifestyle changer, right? Loving others. As God calls on us to love other people, should lead, has to lead. It's just, it changes our lifestyle. And if that's not happening, then we probably have this huge barrier that's restricting the expansion of God in our lives. It's also tangible. You know, it's not just words and deeds, and he talks about that in, a little later. You know, he, in verse 18 of chapter 3, he says, We must not love in word or speech, but in deed and in truth. And so he's saying this is supposed to be tangible. If you've got the world's good and goods, and somebody that you know of, somebody you have a relationship with, or somebody you don't know of as a need, and you have the ability to meet it, he says, You've you got to respond. It's tangible. It's not like, I'll pray for you, brother. That sounds really great, doesn't it? But that's not the way it works. He's saying this love has to somehow become tangible. And then lastly, is I think as you see this idea, if anyone um, sees his brother in need, it's this idea that this love is, is active. It's not like I'll, I'll just sit at home and if I happen to become aware of some need that I can meet, then maybe I'll respond. It's, it's that we're actually out in the world actively seeking to try to be the agents of God's grace, and we're looking for opportunities to love people in the name of Christ, to love others as Christ has loved us. So it's active. It's proactive. It's, it's actually being willing to see and to go into places where we can see our brothers need, and then allow that to change the way we do our lives as we tangibly give away our time or our money or connections or whatever. I think we could also conclude that as we look at the end of verse 21 that this kind of love is simply just an act of obedience where he says, and we have this command from him, the one who loves God must also love his brother. Let me conclude this way because I think it's really a, a great challenge for us. You know, the, the tradition goes that the Apostle John was really old when he passed away. He was well into his 90s. And he got to the place where he, could no long, he was no longer ambulatory, but he was still with it mentally. And so he, he continued to go to services even when he couldn't walk there on his own. So he had people come and carry him to their church gatherings. And he was no longer able to be the full teacher. He just didn't have the energy or whatever, that kind of stuff. And so he went, and they, and they said s- simply a lot of times, he would go and he says, my little children love one another. And he'd go all the time, and he simply said, my little children just love one another. My little children just love one another. My little children. And they'd say, why do you keep saying that over and over again? He said, because in that, there is enough. My little children love one another. One of the great choices we can make to release this great life that God wants to pour into us is to love one another. Let's pray for just a minute, and then I'll turn it over to Steve for our communion experience. God, here's my prayer for us today. I pray this for me. I pray this for all of us who are here. Father, I pray that we would 
hear these words today about loving one another. And we wouldn't see them as a burden, but we'd see it as a privilege. That's my prayer, Lord. Answer it, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.